welcome back to the Security Conversations podcast. My guest this week is Andrew Morris, founder and CEO of Gray Noise Intelligence. Uh, Andrew, what is Gray Noise? What exactly do you guys do? So Gray Noise is effectively a large network of passive sensors that sit back in tons of different corners of the internet and uh, actually record all of the sort of omnidirectional background scan traffic of the internet. And uh, that's basically it's a ton of different traffic that's generated for a ton of different reasons. But it's all people that are mass scanning the Internet, scanning the entirety of the IPv4 space. And essentially, I mean, people have been scanning the Internet for so long now and it's gotten so much more popular and easier than ever to do that it's gotten to the point where good guys, bad guys, et cetera, lots and lots and lots of people are scanning the Internet. And so there's so many people scanning the internet that there's like a lot of different background noise that's basically packets that are hitting everybody on the entire internet. It's kind of backscatter of everything that, um, you know, is, uh, is, is sort of results of all of the people scanning the internet. And, uh, gray noise soaks up all of that background noise, all of that omnidirectional opportunistic scan traffic, um, and soaks it all up into somewhat of a filter. And, uh, and we, we do a handful of things with that traffic between, you know, primarily filtering, filtering that traffic out from what our customers see, but also looking at anomalies of things like what are people scanning for and using it to figure out like emerging threats and things like that. But the easy way to characterize gray noise is basically it's just, it's a large network of sensors that are passively collecting scan and attack traffic and, uh, and labeling it. And, um, and, you know, and trying to derive some semblance of value from that data. Does that make sense? Yeah, of course. There's obviously a lot of legitimate scanning happening, mass scans. People do mass scans for a variety of purposes. As I understand it, you are stripping away like a lot of the noise and just uh, returning, uh, like you said, filtering down to the core of what could potentially be malicious only. Yeah, that's right. And so how are you doing that? Yeah, so um, like it's kind of hard to figure out whether or not something is malicious. Like that's like a super hard problem, like capital H hard problem. So we almost focus less on things whether or not something is malicious, and we focus more on whether or not something is hitting everybody on the entire internet. So basically, the way the way it kind of works is like, for example, we have a ton of different um, sensors and a ton of different data centers around the internet that just sit back and collect om- omnidirectional scan traffic. And so basically, you know, any port protocol pair or anything like that that hits any of these servers, whatever, we correlate all that information into like these like sets of filters. Um, and then what we do is we use those filters to kind of strain out the stuff that our customers are seeing and our users are seeing. So that what's left over is the things that are only hitting them specifically. Um, kind of go back to your question uh, earlier a little bit, like, um, you know, how do you do that? It's, it's basically, um, you know, it's, I was going to say it, it kind of almost seems like there's, there's basically a few steps that you need to go through. You need to have some kind of diversity, lots of different sources of data around lots of different areas of the internet, servers in lots of different places. And then you just need to be able to actually collect basically all of the different traffic that's hitting those things. You need to put it in a central place. You need some ability to label that traffic, enrich that traffic. Um, and, uh, and, and, basically continue it make it available to uh users in some kind of api and then have some integrations that people can use to consume that data with 
who is the target for this? Who's your who's your primary customer? So there's a few different primary customers because there's a few different use cases for gray noise data. So the primary use case is in the security operations center. It's actually saving security operations center, like SOC analysts, time by basically telling them all the things not to worry about. So like effectively what that means is like, you know, security operations centers of of any size waste some amount of money every day and every year, uh, like investigating events and alerts that end up not mattering. Um, when they kind of finally realize like, oh crap, this is actually hitting everybody on the entire internet. Let's skip this and move on to the next thing. Right. And that's like an hour, two hours, three hours, a hundred hours that you can never get back. So that's like some, you know, it's, um, chaff that everyone kind of goes through. Right. And so the primary use case with our enterprise customers is basically saving them time, uh, on the alerts that basically don't matter, deprioritize the things that are hitting everyone on the entire internet, uh, so that you can focus on the things that are only hitting you. Um, and that's that's basically the primary use case for our enterprise customers. Um, the second use case is probably like finding like it's kind of our more like nebulous research use case, um, which is kind of like a security security researcher use case of like what are people scanning for on the internet and why, right? So that's like a se- that's a whole separate question of like you know like what are the ports and protocols that people are scanning the internet for? Like are people scanning the internet for you know, HTTP port 80 or people scanning the internet for port 23 telnet, like, you know, what are they scanning for and why? That's interesting, but it's a little bit less actionable, right? And then, you know, then the, the obvious follow-up questions are, okay, what of the things that people are scanning for, where are they scanning the internet from? What are they looking for, et cetera? What do they do once they find those things? Blah, blah, blah. Then the next kind of follow-on question to that is like, you know, whenever, you know, there's tons of CVEs that are pushed out all the time, tons of vulnerabilities that are disclosed all the time. A very natural question that security professionals have when a vulnerability is reported is, is anyone in the wild actually exploiting this? Like, you know, when Drupalgeddon happened or when Heartbleed happened or Shellshock or whatever, you know, the vulnerability is announced and then everyone's like, ah, okay, like, uh, now what? Like, you know, is anyone actually using this thing? Like, are, are there opportunistic exploitation attempts? Like, is anyone, has anyone weaponized this vulnerability? Has anyone operationalized this vulnerability? Are there botnets that are slinging this exploit? Whatever. So that's another one of the use cases, which is basically figuring out sort of that timeline in between like vulnerability being disclosed and bad guys on the internet that are using that vulnerability to try to, you know, take it, you know, compromise as many machines as possible, where they're coming from, et cetera. So it's kind of like a, almost like an early, like an early warning system of yeah. like, you know, hey, it's like a, you know, like a, a siren or an air horn or something where it's basically like, hey, red alert, you know, the, the vulnerability was, the first thing that happened is the vulnerability was disclosed. And the second thing that happened is, you know, people started actually exploiting the vulnerability. Yeah, and I imagine that component of it is super useful for like red teamers, uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, guys doing penetration testing, trying to figure mm-hmm. out, uh, uh, trying to show an organization their soft spot, like that kind of scanning data for, like, like you explained, Drupal Geddon becomes really, really crucial that you can say there's actionable intelligence that this is, their scanners running in the wild. And That's right. This is a proper target now. That's right. Yeah. And it's like, I mean, it brings a whole new level of clarity to customers when you can say, hey, we found this vulnerability um, in your perimeter. And also you should pr- you should really probably, you know, prioritize fixing this one because we know for a fact bad guys are opportunistically exploiting this. And so then the obvious next 
you know, follow on question to that is, you know, have you already been compromised as a result? Um, and honestly, that's like kind of a nice segue into the next point, which is if you have been compromised, if like you have a device on the internet that has been compromised, um, if the device, if the IP on the internet that compromised one of your websites or servers or, you know, uh, routers or, you know, something like that, if they have, then it's really nice to know whether or not it was compromised by like an opportunistic campaign or like a targeted campaign. Targeted campaign, exactly. Yeah, because, you know, the difference between some kid sitting in a basement trying to, you know, like mine Bitcoin with as many, you know, V, you know, VC or, you know, DVRs as humanly possible is, that's a huge difference between that and like, you know, APT1 popping one of your devices. Like that's a, that's a, yeah, it's a six, seven figure incident response check that you're talking about. Um, if only you're able to really know the difference. But if you don't know the difference, you have to assume the worst. Right. One of, one of the things, one of the sexy stories making the rounds is botnets, uh, scanning for, uh, you mentioned bitcoins, but cryptocurrency, uh, oh, yeah. uh, things. Can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing in that space? Um, is it just a sexy headline here or there, or are there like, uh, systematic concerted efforts uh, and activity around that? Yeah, so I'm going to answer that question in two parts. One is once people have compromised a device using some vulnerability or another, um, we've actually seen, like, it's really common for, like, if people do try to drop malware, like, once they've compromised a device, like, it's just getting more and more common where, especially with, like, some of the shotgun, like, the scatter the scattershot, like shotgun blast attacks where people are just trying to compromise as many machines as humanly possible. One of the things that we've seen that's more and more prevalent is like people just using cryptocurrency miners as the payload to like, it just immediately monetizes the thing or whatever. Um, and they can make, you know, make money right away as opposed to having some ransomware or some obscure spam campaign or something like that, like to actually make money. The second thing that I want to bring up though is, you know, actual, actual attacks on, you know, cryptocurrency miners and things like that. I mean, basically what we see by and large is people just sweeping the entire breadth of the internet for, you know, common low hanging fruit misconfigurations of like, uh, cryptocurrency mining software, like node software, um, uh, you know, Claymore miners, um, EOS developer nodes, like thing like things like that, looking for exposed private keys that they can use to, you know, tra to to uh, take the funds out of it, take the coins out of a wallet, or you know, transfer them to another wallet or something like that. And we see that a pretty good amount. And um, I, it's one of those things that's um, it's kind of hard to feel bad for the people that that affects because again, like that's such a low hanging fruit thing that you know you kind of you know if you if you're exposing you know, like there's, there's certain things that, um, there's just so low effort, but bad guys know that if they scan the entire internet for something, they're bound to find, you know, at least a hundred people that have made some mistake or something like that. And it just kind of goes to show that, you know, how small the internet is relatively now, so to speak. But yeah, we see, we see that kind of stuff all the time. What should people be most worried about as it relates to not the mass scanning, but once you filter down, what, what, what is, is there like a, a single thing that, not necessarily keeps you up at night, but to use a phrase, is there a, a piece of scanning that's happening or some targeted activity that's happening that, that, that raises your eyebrows? Um, Mirai was like that. I mean, I remember watching, cause I've been doing this kind of, you know, related like internet scanning, opportunistic attack, like research on this kind of topic for a long, I mean, for a couple of years now, so whatever, relatively long. 
um, for a relatively long time. And I remember seeing Mirai as it was getting built out. And, you know, I mean, that was really terrifying. And I remember like thinking in my head, like, it's really a matter of time before this botnet does something really big. And then, you know, uh, the Dyn DNS, like that whole DNS uh, <laughs> amplification DDoT, that whole DOS happened and it took down like DNS for everyone on like, the East Coast. Um, it was super gnarly, but I remember being not surprised at all when that happened. I mean, I, I, I think about, I often think back to Mirai. And now the thing that kind of scares me the most is that like, that's kind of still happening. Like, I mean, Mirai is still building up numbers and there's a ton of other botnets that are doing that as well. I guess one of the things that really scares me is that there are just, there are so many, there are so many vulnerable devices sitting on the internet that are just ripe for the taking. Right. And, and it's hard to patch. Uh, it's not necessarily hard to patch. That's a bad way to put it, but. Uh, no, you're uh, right. It is hard to patch. I mean, a lot of these devices that get pushed out don't have an auto patch mechanism. And maybe right, they but that rely. doesn't make it hard to patch. I mean, I mean, we should get there with everything should be self patching, but that doesn't excuse people not patching things. I well, feel yeah, like sometimes like, in this industry we get away with, oh, it's not auto updating, so it's hard to patch. Sure. But, but, yeah, we're getting into semantics. Um, yeah. the, well, the, the problem it, with the, on the router side for me is just, uh, not necessarily that one, it's hard to patch and two, it's just routinely ignored. And even things like multipurpose printers and, uh, you know, some of these connected things that just never, ever, ever get patched. Yeah. No, I mean, you're exactly right. And, um, you know, and there's also a part of it, which is like, you know, where does the, where does the burden lay? Where is the responsibility? Is it, you know, should it be the responsibility is at the vendor, at the device vendor for, you know, allowing the vulnerability to get planted into the device in the first place? Like not planted per se, that makes it sound malicious, but allowing, allowing the vulnerability to, you know, to exist based on like a, you know, a QA oversight or poor coding practices, letting it always happen. Is it, you know, is it, is it the vulnerable, is it the, the burden of the user for not patching when the vulnerability gets announced? Is it the burden of the internet service provider for, you know, like allowing the external world to communicate with the vulnerable service? Is it the vulnerable, is it like, you know, the cert, like the, the, I mean, there's, there's like so many different places that allows pretty much everybody to dodge, dip and duck their way around a lot of the responsibility um, that it just makes it, it makes it really hard and everyone ends up paying the price. Like when things like, you know, the DNS for the entire East Coast going down and things like that. Like yeah. there's just a lot of gaps for people to, you know, kind of like, I guess, like avoid responsibility. Yeah, especially on the router side. On average, someone walks into Best Buy, plugs in a router and just forgets about it for years and years and years. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's why we're seeing VPN filter and Mirai and uh, oh, a yeah. lot of the consumer focused things. Yeah. On and the it, same yeah. tip. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, I mean, and it's, it's, it's hard for me to say that it's getting better. Um, I just, I think I'm a little bit maybe desensitized, but, um, or maybe jaded, but like the, there's just like, there are just so many compromised devices on the internet right now. And there's, and, and the, the really scary part is that like the sophistication of the thing that targets the majority of those is so low that it kind of freaks me out where I'm just like, well, what in, what happens when like the slightly sophisticated bad guys start targeting like all these different, you know, various IoT devices, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm just like, oh, that's going to be terrifying. 
Or what happens yeah. when somebody just like RMs all of them? Like, honestly, that might be the best thing that could happen. Yeah, we are making assumptions that a lot of that stuff is, isn't happening already. The really sophisticated guys are the ones who don't do it on a mass scale and just, you know, do it uh, narrowly and targeted. And you have to assume that's happening. Right, and we just don't know about it. Oh, we just don't know about it. Uh, yeah, Rob okay. Joyce, uh, I, I keep bringing this up on the podcast, did a talk at Enigma, uh, former NSA guy, talked about... Um, the importance of people to be tapping their own routers and inspecting their own uh, router traffic. Is that something gray noise can help with? Um, gray noise will not be able to tap into people's own router traffic. I mean, what gray noise would be able to do is if somebody already had visibility into what was coming into and out of their own DMZ, gray noise would be able to tell you all the things that are hitting you specifically versus the things that are hitting the entire rest of the internet. So it'd be able to filter differentiate between like the backscatter and like the, the background radiation and things that are only hitting you. So it'd give you some context and situational awareness, but it wouldn't necessarily help you get that vantage point in the first place, if that makes sense. Right. How, how is what you're doing different from what the guys at the SANS ISD, Tom Center, or some of the other places are doing around tracking, scanning activity on specific ports? Um, that's actually a really good question. I don't know enough about the SANS Internet Storm Center to really know. And I think D-Shield specifically is kind of like their big honeypot project. I And I could be wrong about that. I don't know enough about how they do things to know uh, how, what, like where the differences lie. Um, the things that Gray Noise does that nobody else that I've met so far has done or no other companies that I'm aware of have done so far is like uh, a few things. The biggest thing is like our infrastructure is all completely ephemeral so like all of our collector nodes are shifting around constantly um not all of them but a lot of them are shifting around constantly so they're going up and down in the cloud um in various different data centers so that they're basically they're very very hard to track and very hard to fingerprint and even if you do track them then they you know shift and they're gone by the time you know about it so that's one thing i don't know anybody most people that i know of that are tracking those kinds of things they have like a fixed set of infrastructure with a few exceptions. Um, uh, another thing is like um, we have labels that we've applied for everything. So we're not just looking at like, oh, port 22 TCP, like that's what's happening. And it's an uptick. Like that's the third most common thing that's being scanned for. Like we actually apply like a lot of intelligent labels as well. Like we'll label actors like Shodan, Census, Project Sonar, et cetera. Um, as well as we'll actually label the tools that people use to create the packets. Um, so we like apply labels like, you know, like ZMAP and, and when we're able to mass scan and, you know, et cetera. Um, and then I think also we do a lot of heuristics on the sort of uh, the, the we, we do a lot of en enrichments around the networks and the IPs uh, where the scan traffic is coming from in the first place. So like, We'll do enrichments on organization and on RDNS and on ASN um, and things like that, as well as doing fingerprints on like the uh, implementation, the nuances of the implementation of the TCP stack as well, doing things like um, passive operating system fingerprinting, um, et cetera. So we do a few things that are differently there. But again, I mean, it's very possible that SANS uh, specifically, like they may be doing a number of those different things and I just don't know about it. Um, uh, I just try to be as transparent as I possibly can be about um, how gray noise works, um, you know, to the point where, you know, adversarial game theory permits me to do so. <laughs> uh, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about uh, your background and uh, your 
your experience building the company. One of the things I like doing talking on this podcast to young entrepreneurs, not, I don't know, uh, to yeah, I would love uh, entrepreneurs is how, you know, how do you go about making the decision, uh, to bootstrap it, build a company from scratch versus taking in some VC funding and growing faster? What's, what's that mindset like? If, if you don't mind, talk to me a little bit about the creation of gray noise. You know, yeah. the company, size of the company, your own background and your thinking as you uh, decided to. Yeah, I would love to. So um, that's uh, that's I could talk about this forever. So the decision to bootstrap was pretty easy for me. Um, it, uh, I I already kind of feel like I had. Well, OK, so like let me before I even get into like the financials of it, um, this is like kind of like a sort of open secret. Um, I don't exactly advertise this, but Grey Noise actually only consists of one person, and uh, that one person is myself. So there, uh, I always use the um, the terms like we, us, like blah, 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 but like it's it's really just me. So, um, you know, that's uh, that's one like, you know, it's a sort of known secret among friends, but, um, you know, people on the internet don't necessarily know that. So um, Grey Noise is, you know, one person. Um, so that's a big part of it. Um, and so then the next kind of piece of it is like the, approaching the financials. So like, why bootstrap? Why not raise money? Blah, blah, blah. I mean, a huge part of that is that the total addressable market for Grey Noise is not gigantic. I mean, Grey Noise is never going to be a billion dollar company. Grey Noise is going to be, you know, like a couple million dollar company. Because when you think about it, you know, the, the product that we provide to security operations centers is valuable, right? Um, and there's there's so much money that each of those are going to pay and there's so many security operation centers in the world and what we end up with is like you know the total addressable market the maximum amount of money we could possibly make and that maximum amount of money is you know don't get me wrong it's a you know it's a, it's, it's it's in the millions of dollars but it's just not really high enough um to in my opinion um warrant you know like venture capital um and like bringing in you know maybe hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars of investment because the return um, is just not going to ever be large enough that the VCs are going to be satisfied, in my opinion. I'm a first-time founder, so I don't know that to be correct. I don't know. I don't know that that's true, 100% true. It's just kind of what my what my kind of what my gut said, and so that's why I kind of decided to not. Um, that's why I, one of the reasons why I decided to not raise money. The other reason why I decided to not raise money, and this is a really big part, is because I didn't necessarily have to. Um, I had a little bit of money saved up. I made a little bit of money. Um, last year and I don't mind being really broke. And so when you bootstrap a company, that basically means you're going to be really broke for a while. And like, that's, I have no problem being really broke and just basically taking all of my money and, you know, pouring it into server costs and things like that. Like that's completely fine with me. If it means that I can maintain a hundred percent control of the company, a hundred percent ownership, et cetera. Um, you know, that's it, it, uh, that's, that's kind of another factor. And then I just mentioned it briefly, but control is a huge part of it for me. Um, Gray Noise is already like a little bit of a strange company because, you know, I'm taking sort of an opposite approach of, of threat intel where I'm basically saying, here's all the things not to worry about. And that's kind of weird. And it doesn't necessarily resonate with a lot of people. And it's a little counterintuitive. And but it makes the most sense. I think it makes perfect sense too. But, and, and, and I, I honestly, I mean, our customers are already seeing value in that, which is fantastic. But, all of this is to say that like we're doing a lot of things sort of for the first time and I just didn't want to run the risk of having like, you know, somebody sitting on the board of my company that doesn't necessarily understand the industry as well as I do 
um, telling me what they think that the company should do and me having to listen to them. Right. So and then there's no desperation for an exit. There's no exactly. pressure from investors. There's no. Exactly. And one of the, that's, that's huge for me because a big part of it is like we charge, um, like very reasonable rates for our enterprise customers. And we do that so that we can always stay competitive. And so no other, you know, company with slimmer profit margins and way more overhead can come and stomp us out of existence. We always want to be a, like a no brainer for our enterprise customers to say like, oh yeah, that amount, like that makes perfect sense. Like, let's do it. Let's knock it out. And so like, like in order to be able to keep that ability to price in that way, then we really have to, you know, it's, it's important for me to basically maintain 100% control of pricing and things like that and have, have not have to listen to anybody else so that I can always keep our customers really happy and I can make sure that, you know, the pricing can stay as reasonable as humanly possible so it always makes sense for our customers. And that, that's a huge part of it. Absolutely. Do you sense this uh, uh, a trend among your peers? Uh, I, I just bring this up because I had the exact same conversation with Harun Mir over at Thinkst um, Canary mm. Tools. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and his argument was exactly the same thing. I don't want to deal with the pressures. I want to keep my pricing at where I think it's applicable and practical for us to just continue to grow at a sustainable rate, uh, without getting caught up in this, uh, multi-million dollar exits and all that stuff. Do you sense yeah. there's a trend among some of your peers and some, uh, newer entrepreneurs to, uh, take this approach? Um, Honestly, I haven't really been like a like a I guess an entrepreneur or a founder for long enough to have a a good answer for you. All I know is really just having been in the industry for a while. I've noticed there's companies kind of go one of two ways. Like companies either try to do sort of like a slow roll, like build value, um, show value, work with the customers, um, you know, kind of build things up a little bit more organically. And those businesses always seem to be very sustainable or it's kind of the other way around where it's like, ah, let's raise a ton of money and hire a bunch of people. And then maybe or maybe not make, uh, you know, any of that money back directly from the customers. And then, you know, if a year or two has gone by and it looks like we're not going to make all that money, then let's just act, let's like functionally sell the company to a really huge company where they're pretty much just buying the team. Right. Um, If it becomes one of those, I hire a thing. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, that's a really gross kind of self-licking ice cream cone that I don't necessarily want to be a part of. Um, I'm, I'm a real extremist about it. Like, I feel like if I'm not providing value to the customer, then like, what am I doing? Like, if I'm making my money from investors, then that just, that feels disgusting to me. So I would rather, I would just, I would way rather actually make my money directly from the customers because I guess this is just something that, I just feel like it's a lot more sustainable and I feel like it'll always, I'll always, if I'm providing value to customers, then like the, the business will always be in a good shape. It'll always be healthy and I won't necessarily be beholden to anybody else and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Standard entrepreneur crap. But on the flip side, you have enterprise customers who are relying on, um, on you for support, for helping them to, you know, tweak things. You're a one man shop. Yeah. Responsible so what, what for happens PR and doing bus, right? po- stupid podcasts like these and <laughs> writing blog posts and being on yeah. Twitter, doing your own marketing. So your marketing, sales, tech, your everything at some point, at some point you'll hit that spot where uh, the company grows. Uh, you, you're starting to get traction with enterprise customers and then there's no way for, for one man to. Oh, yeah. 
you're exactly right. I mean, when it, you know, there's a line that you get to at some point or another as a one-man company where you can't continue any further. Um, we've seen a few examples of functionally one-man companies or one, you know, one-person companies that, you know, they get to a certain size and they can't really scale past that. I have no plan of staying a one-man company forever. Um, I'm, you know, Gray Noise is going to be a one-man company until we've got enough reliable revenue that I can start building the team out a little bit, but it's never going to be, um, I mean, it just doesn't, it, to your point exactly, it just does not make sense uh, for Gray Noise specifically. How to do you know when you hit that spot, though? Oh, my God. That is a really hard question. I, I once read that you, you, you need to not hire anybody until you literally absolutely cannot continue to function without hiring somebody, without hiring another person, which right. seems, well, seems, seems to make sense. But, like, you know, how do you know when that happens? How many, how many days go by where you're just like, oh, God, I can't do this anymore in terms literally of everything. alone? Literally every single day I wake up and I'm like, I can't do this shit anymore. Like this is so, there's just, I'm so exhausted. I'm so dead. I, I, I'm done. I like, I'm going, I'm, I'm locking myself in my room and I'm going to sleep and I'm never coming back out. I'm so done with this internet scanning shit. And it's I do, such I mean, a I normal say, feeling for entrepreneurs. I say that, I say that every day. Um, and then I don't know. I mean, I just, I talk myself back up. I get back up and I keep doing it. But it, I mean, it literally, it beats down on you every day. Some days are worse than others. Um, like, I mean, I could get into this forever and ever, but, um, you know, I've had other things that have fallen through before I've lost friends. Um, you know, like I've had businesses, like I've had, I've tried to start a company before this and it, you know, blew up in my face. Um, I've had venture capitalists like try to screw me. I've had people try to screw me. Um, you know, and like, so some days, some days are worse than others. Some days are, it's, it's really, really, really hard. And then some days you like provide value to customers, you get users really excited. Um, you know, you have a success story, you have a win, somebody texts you that you've never met before, people email you that you've never met before. And they're like, Hey, gray noise is super cool. You just saved me, you know, a ton of hours at work and blah, blah, blah. And like, that makes it all worth it. To me. Right. You get an adrenaline rush again. Exactly. And, and again, a lot of this is coming, uh, from SOC analysts. Guys in the trenches using right. uh, uh, gray noise to just cut through the noise and, and figure out which tickets are actionable and which are not. That's right. A ton of it is coming from SOC analysts who are excited because they're like, oh, my God, this is the first product I've ever used that actually gives me less work. Um, so that's huge because it pays for itself right there. Um, a lot of it comes from other a lot of the excitement actually for me comes from like other people that have been in like the cyber cartography, so to speak, space, Internet scanning space. Um, honeypot space. I don't really like to think of gray noise as a honeypot. Um, but you know, like in, in that similar space, a lot of the rejuvenation and excitement comes from them because they're like, Oh my God, I've been waiting for somebody to build something like this. Um, like I, I've, I've been really lucky to have a, a good relationship with like the project sonar guys, um, with John from Shodan, uh, with the binary edge guys, like everybody who's like kind of doing this kind of thing as well. Like I've been really lucky to, get in contact with them and share information, swap notes, stuff like that. And that, that is another thing, like just finding other people that are excited about this same ultra specific niche, part of a niche um, in the first place. Uh, and, and that's, that's been super helpful for me. I, I was going to ask that, is there a lot of competition in this space or is this uh, a place where the information sharing is a lot more casual because of the, you know, the intellectual thrill of, 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 putting this together 
That's a really good question. I approach that really differently from a lot of people. So I'm really aggressive. I, I aggressively share information. Um, it's like a core value of mine. Whenever I meet somebody that holds their cards to their chest for like facts and information and stuff like that, I always default to assuming that they're insecure and that they're not very smart. And so, and I'm just like, if you, if you can't, it's all about the process. If you can't reliably come up with innovative ways to solve problems and things like that. And if you're just like, if you rely on just people not knowing one fact or one like little thing, then like you're always going to have a bad time. So I give everything away for free. To, to answer your question, or like I give, I give as much information away for free as humanly possible while still being able to make my living. Um, uh, I think, uh, other people, you know, is it competitive? Uh, is there good information sharing? Honestly, it depends. There's two kinds of, I've, I've found two different kinds of, I guess, character types that I've found of maybe founders of other companies or, you know, executive teams of other companies, um, where, Either people are more warm and open to, you know, open information exchange, open information sharing. Like I said, like the people that, you know, the Project Sonar guys are awesome about that. Um, Binary Edge guys are great about that. Um, Jonathan Shodan's really good about that stuff as well. Like they're all really good about, you know, sp spreading the love, spreading the information. There's other companies that I'm not going to name that are less good about that and that like their whole business model relies on the fact that they hold their cards to their chest. And I understand that there's some slight necessity for that, but it's a sliding scale. And some people, some people are better about sharing uh, information than others. I am just really aggressive about it because nothing pisses me off more than, you know, somebody or a group of people who have, you know, information and they hold it to their chests because, uh, you know, I don't know, it makes them, it, it allows them to establish like a fiefdom or something like that. It's just, it just seems selfish and, and honestly, it just it deeply bothers me. Uh, what's next for Gray, Gray Noise? What's what's on the horizon? What is something you're in, in, in the in the spirit of information sharing? Uh, oh man, <laughs> um, we're working on so much cool stuff. Um, so we've got Gray Noise Research Tools, the early access program right now that's running. That's basically um, got about thirty people. Um, in the Slack channel, we've got a lot more people that are using it that just aren't in the Slack channel, like actually talking with us. Um, basically, I mean, we've got a whole new set of API functionality that allows researchers to dig through the data and find weird stuff, find compromised devices, do time series analysis of different kind of scan traffic over time. Um, you know, like, uh, basically just, just dig through the data in every which way possible. Like that is, we're ironing that out and getting feedback on everything right now. That's really exciting. And I'm really looking forward to getting that out so kind of like the general public can use that as well. Um, we're working out some like data, some partnerships with some organizations about sort of like exchanging data in order to get even better visibility into like Internet scanning activity, um, you know, uh, propagation of Internet worms, things like that, um, that I'm really excited about. Um, and then kind of like beyond that, my my grand vision for gray noise is that you know right now we're soaking up all the internet scan traffic in the world and we're telling we're using that to filter out the events that you know don't matter to people or shouldn't matter to people but in the future i mean i really want gray noise to be like the company that you know that basically tells everybody whether it's an internet you know an internet source threat or if it's a file or if it's a you know if it's a 
something that's going in and out of the DMZ or if it's something that's happening on a host, a process, a malicious process or something like that. Like, I really hope that at some point, you know, in the future, gray noise is actually like the, the dumpster where all the, all the stuff, all the false positives, all of the low priority stuff, like everything goes to save everybody else time. I mean, everybody collectively, any analyst or researcher wastes a lot of time you know, duplicating the same effort as another researcher to figure out that something is a false positive or to figure out that something, you know, that they're not worried about it. And I would really like for Gray Noise to be like the clearinghouse of, you know, all of that stored effort so that, you know, everyone can can kind of benefit from that together. So that's kind of my grand vision, but that's that's going to take years. Um, and right now the priority is just we need we have, you know, one thing that we do which is soak up internet scan traffic, reduce it from what our customers see, use it to find infections for some of our other customers and observe kind of trends over time for the research community. We're just going to keep doing those things better than anybody else. We're going to keep adding all of the features that anybody wants. Um, we're going to keep publishing research and working with other partner vendors. And we're, we're, we're just going to keep on doing this until we've completely dominated this space. And then that's when we're going to start kind of like looking at expanding further into like the greater vision of absorbing, you know, every false positive ever and remediating, remediating it from everybody's sim and blah, blah, blah. So I hope, does that answer your question? It does. Thanks a lot, Andrew. Appreciate the time. Best of luck with the company. Best of luck with the project. Um, I'll be paying attention. Thank you so much for having me.